Hello and welcome to our weekly broadcast at apologetics.watch. Um, I'm your host, Luke Wayne, Christian apologist and researcher. And uh, this is my uh, producer, Aaron. Say hi, say hi, Aaron. Hello. And uh, this is a weekly broadcast that we do covering important issues in Christian apologetics, uh, historical theology, and uh, biblical interpretation. And so thank you guys for joining us. For those of you don't know, who don't know me, uh, I've been a full-time Christian apologist for four years, um, been doing street-level Christian apologetics since 2003, and I've been a missionary in Utah since 2013. Um, local church elder, and perhaps most importantly to me, um, I am a husband of an amazing wife and father to three children, the youngest of whom is due to be born this April. Uh, but one particularly unique thing about our family is that uh, my wife was born blind and both of my first two children were also born blind. And I don't just mean legally blind, like less than, uh, you know, 2200 vision, but literally disconnected retinas, no eyesight whatsoever. And since my third child hasn't been born yet, uh, at this particular moment, I am still the only person in our household that has ever seen anything. Uh, the only one who has the slightest bit of visual experience. And uh, that can immediately, you probably start thinking about all the challenges that that presents. And it certainly does present some, but uh, sometimes it's actually pretty cool. Because uh, when, when I walk in the room, to, you know, to my kids, especially when as they're getting a little older, it's becoming a little more normal. But especially when my kids were younger, I was like a superhero to them. Uh, vision to them was like a supernatural power that I could just walk in the room and instantly know where everything was, find the lost toy in a fraction of a second, and maybe on the negative side to them, identify exactly what they were doing wrong from across the room. They didn't know how I did it, but they quickly learned that I could do it. And they understood as time went on that daddy has vision, that I have an ability that they don't have. And, uh, and so they, they admired me, looked up to me. They were so fascinated by it. Um, but it, it does create some, some unique conversations too, though, especially with my daughter. Uh, she loves dressing up. She loves clothes and bows and, and uh, hairstyles and all those things. And amidst all of that, she is obsessed with knowing the color of everything she wears, not just pragmatically to match them, though that's a part of it, but she really wants to know about color. But it, it sometimes it gets down to the more fundamental question of, okay, daddy, this is red, but what is red? What does it mean that this flower in my hair is yellow and the one I put in my hair yesterday was white? They feel the same. What's the difference? What is color? And to someone who has never seen anything, how would you explain it? I mean, what is teal? Well, you tell them, okay, it's between blue and green, but what's green? What's blue? I, I don't know, but, but that's not correct. I do. I do know. 
I know exactly what I mean when I say the word green, but I do not have the words to communicate it and to convey the experience of green to someone who has never seen. And this is much the territory that Christians often feel we are entering into when it comes to describing the doctrine of the Trinity. We are talking about the majestic, unique nature of our God. One of the most incredible aspects of his nature that he has revealed to us, that is uniquely and truly his own, that is not like anything that he made. And because it is not like anything that he has made, it is, it's something that we, we struggle to set to words because there is nothing in our experience to which we can compare it. I can't point to something and say the Trinity is like that any more than I can put my daughter's hand on something and say red is just like this because red isn't like anything that she can feel or taste or hear. And the Trinity is not like anything else in creation that we have ever experienced. Nothing else is a Trinity. And yet, that does not mean that when it comes to the Trinity, we must be silent. We can speak. God has made it known, but we are entering into some amazing, awe-inspiring territory. The kind of thing that we can and should spend and devote our whole lives into studying and trying to understand with the diligence and fascination and, and love and passion with which my daughter approaches her zeal to grasp this whole world of color that she knows is around her, but that she does, just doesn't quite comprehend or fathom, but yearns to take it in. The Trinity is utterly unique and something we never could have known if God had not revealed to us. Just as my daughter will never know what color is unless she's granted sight. If I really wanted to explain green, I would have to miraculously open her eyes to behold the whole range of colors that she could set green in the midst of and say green is this and not that. And God has condescended to do something like that to us, to open our minds through the scriptures that we could not simply have a creed to define the Trinity, but that we could encounter and understand the Trinity in action and at work in his creation, the persons of the Trinity in relationship with one another. And there are so many great wonders and mysteries and marvels to understand in this truth about our God that we could and we will spend many, many episodes on this subject. But right now, I just want to take in and, and see the biblical definition of what is the Trinity and how has God revealed that to us in Scripture on the most fundamental level and to see this unique aspect of our God to which there is nothing we can compare, nothing in creation and nothing even in the, uh, 
the philosophies or thoughts or abstract notions of men. No other religion has ever come up with anything that we could set the Trinity next to and say, oh, you can understand because it's like that. As uh, C.S. Lewis uh, observed, a good number of people nowadays say, I believe in a God, but not in a personal God. They feel that the mysterious something which is behind all other things must be more than a person. Now the Christian, Christians quite agree, but the Christians are the only people who offer any idea of what a being that is beyond personality might be like. At all, all other people, uh, sorry, all the other people, though they say that God is beyond personality, really think of him as something that is impersonal. That is, as something less than personal. If you are looking for something super personal, something more than a person, then it is not a question of choosing between the Christian idea and the other ideas. The Christian idea is the only one on the market. So, as Lewis was observing here, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is utterly unique because it is the one true God making himself known. And there is something in us to the core of our being that knows, that knows that the true God who brought all things to existence must be something greater, more magnificent than the confines of our own human personal nature. And God has revealed himself as just that, and there is no other conception that can rival it. But what do we mean? What are we saying when we call God a trinity? And Christians have uh, wrestled with how to answer that question. The early centuries of the church were filled with debates wrong ideas, trying to grapple it out, wrestling over words and phrases uh, to come to uh, the, the set of creeds that we often use as our, as our best, most agreed upon definitions and expressions of how we might briefly and concisely, if you'll allow me to loosely use those words, uh, define this amazing aspect of God's nature. So what do we mean when we call God a trinity? Well, one of the most classical, thorough, but, but straightforward articulations of that in church history is from what's called the Athanasian Creed, um, which has been recited and uh, memorized, read and studied by Christians around the world for hundreds and hundreds, or, uh, you know, over a thousand years since uh, the fourth century AD. And so let's, let's take a look. I'm going to read through this, the, the full creed, I want you guys to really hear this and listen before we kind of break it down to a simpler, more workable definition that we might use for the rest of this program. But to really see all that goes in to defining what we mean by the Trinity. And so, the Athanasian Creed is, this is the universal faith. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor separating the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, 
co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, so is the Son, and so is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And nevertheless, there are not three eternals, but one eternal. So also, so also not three uncreated, nor three immeasurable, but one uncreated and one immeasurable. Likewise, the Father is omnipotent, the Son is omnipotent, the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, and nevertheless not three omnipotents, but one omnipotent. Therefore, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and nevertheless not three gods, but one God. Therefore, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and nevertheless not three lords, but one Lord. Because Christian truth compels us to confess each distinct person as God and Lord, therefore universal religion prohibits us from saying there are three gods or lords. The Father is neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son is from the Father alone, neither made nor created but begotten. The Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. Thus one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is before or after, none is greater or less, but the entire three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. Thus it is completely as has been said above. We must worship unity in Trinity and Trinity in unity. As a result, whoever would be saved should think thus about the Trinity. So, I mean, that is what we mean by the Trinity. But it is kind of a mouthful. I mean, can you imagine flipping open a dictionary to Trinity and that's the definition? And yet there's... There's nothing in there that I would remove. It is, it is such a clear, thorough, and there is value in walking through a definition like that carefully and grappling with each word to understand what is being said. But Christians over the years have also tried to come up with more concise expressions of ways we can explain this briefly, especially when talking to an unbeliever and wanting to simply say what we mean by the Trinity and then turn to the scriptures to really dig into what God says about himself. Uh, and so, for example, um, uh, for example, Matt Slick at Karm.org has said, the Trinity is defined as one God who exists in three eternal simultaneous and distinct persons known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, likewise, Dr. James White has said, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so on What we, what we try to break it down to in these simple de definitions, and yes, you were losing some of the nuance, but we try to get down to the basic facts revealed in Scripture 
that what we see in Scripture is that there is one and only one God in all of existence. We see in Scripture that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each identified as being that one God. And yet, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each presented as distinct persons. They exist simultaneously and interact with one another. The Father sends the Son. The Son pours out the Holy Spirit. The Son prays to the Father. The Spirit within us groans and intercedes to the Father on our behalf as we cry out to Him. We read about uh, in Romans 8, there is this intercommunication, interrelationship, even love between the persons of the Trinity that we see they are distinct persons, and yet we know that they are each the one God, that it is one God who exists in these three persons. And as Scripture reveals this, so we accept this reality as God presents to us. And so when we speak of the Trinity, we are speaking of a, revel a self-revelation of God that he's made known of this incredible, unique aspect of his nature. But it's not like, it's not just one Christian doctrine on a list of Christian doctrines that, okay, I want to talk about baptism. Here's the verses I'd go to on that. I want to talk about uh, the Christian doctrine of creation, and here's the creation verses. And then, okay, here's my Trinity proof text. And critics of the Trinity love this fact. They love that they can, hey, turn to the one verse that just says, God is a Trinity. God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. And we, the Trinity is not the sort of doctrine that God revealed in that way. And I think the reason gets back to where I started, that the Athanasian Creed is an incredible description of the Trinity, but it's a description written by people to whom the Trinity is already revealed. They've encountered it in Scripture, they've come to that self-revelation God. They've experienced green, and now they can see it. And now they can explain what they mean by it in words that other people who encounter green will understand and can systematize their thought. But when God first revealed the Trinity, he didn't simply explain it in a creedal statement, because that would not have sufficed we would not have grasped what he meant. God drew us in throughout scripture and God manifested himself in the incarnation of the Son, in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, in, uh, in events like the baptism of Jesus, where the Son is standing in the water, the voice of the Father cries out from heaven while the Spirit descends as a dove. You, you have throughout Scripture these various ways in which God displays this reality of himself until he brings us into an understanding of who he is revealing himself to be. And so it is through the systematic study and a willingness to embrace everything that Scripture says without denying or brushing off anything. It is through that that we come to see God as Trinity, and then we can define and explain him in these summary creedal statements. And so today, we've seen the summaries. We know the words, but let's dive in and let's encounter the Trinity as God in just some small ways 
in just some of the many places we can turn to in Scripture, as God made himself known in these basic categories. Monotheism, that there is one and only one God. And then the plurality of persons, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all that one God. Each of them are that one God, yet with, without removing the fact that they are also distinct and simultaneous persons in fellowship and interaction with one another. So let's, uh, let's dive in. We have, uh, I think a good place to begin is a place where God first introduced himself to, or you might say reintroduced himself to his covenant people in the time of Moses, when God uh, appeared to Moses in the burning bush and was sending Moses to deliver the people of Israel who had for 400 years been in Egyptian slavery. And Moses is, uh, is now concerned about how he can go back to Israel. God is sending him in his own name to set the people free. But Moses is, okay, but, but what am I going to say? Who will I tell them that you are? And so in Exodus 3, 13 through 15, we read, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God further said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my memorial name forever. And this is, or this is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So what is God saying here? Moses is wondering, okay, I'm going to go back to Israel. It's been a long time since the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And clearly, the people of Israel, uh, there's a lot they don't know. A lot they either don't remember or did not yet learn about God. And so Moses is going to go back to them. Okay, your God is going to deliver you. But Moses is concerned that Israel's going to ask, which God? Who? Who is this God of our fathers that is going to deliver us. Tell us his name. Tell us which God you are talking about that is going to come and deliver us. And Moses asked God flat out, so what am I supposed to tell them? Who are you, God? Who are you? And God says, okay, you want to know which God I am? I am. I am the God who is. That's what you're going to tell them. And then he says, as we see here in the last part of the verse, um, you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, now notice Lord in all capitals there. That's Yahweh or Jehovah. That is the, the name that God gives himself 
So when we see through the, re through the rest of the passage, passages we look at, when we see Lord in all capitals, we're dealing with the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And Yahweh is simply a derivative of the Hebrew verb to be, or the word for I am. And so God literally has a form of I am as his personal name. He names himself I am. And this name itself, this passage, when God says I am, how did the earliest people who heard this who read these words in Exodus, understand what God was saying. How did they interpret? Well, one of the ways we can look at that is by looking at the most ancient translations, how they rendered it. And as I was, as I was saying, when we look and see in the Septuagint, the ancient pre-New Testament Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Torah, the uh, five books of Moses, including Exodus, being the oldest portion of that, from several hundred years before the New Testament, they translated when God said, I am that I am, they translated it as, I am the being one. Or in smoother English, we would say, I am the one who is. The Aramaic Targum, which is just the Aramaic translation, ancient Aramaic translation of, uh, uh, of Exodus here, we would find, I am he who is and he who will be. So all of the ancient readers, when they approached this text, understood that God was identifying in this naming something about himself, something very specific that distinguished him from all other gods. Which God am I? And he didn't send them to say, oh, I am the God of the heavens, or I am the God who created, I'm the God of the oceans, I'm the God of, of any particular thing. What sets God more than anything else apart from all other gods, the definitive thing that he told uh, Moses to go tell Israel at this beginning of their covenant relationship as he was going to deliver them out in the Exodus, bring them to Sinai, make his covenant with them, begin this fellowship with the people of Israel as he brought them into the promised land. Okay, they're gonna ask who I am, which God am I? I am the God who is. I am, and by extension, all other gods are not. God literally names himself monotheism. He titles himself, my personal relationship with you, what you will call me is that I am the God who is. I'm the God who exists. That is what makes me different from any other gods. There are no other gods. Whatever other spirits, angels, demons, supernatural beings that may exist in all of the created order are not of the same order of being of what Yahweh is. He's not just the strongest of the gods, the greatest of the gods. Anything else that men might call a god is not even the same thing that Yahweh is. In the most literal, true sense of the word, Yahweh is the only God. And that's the very first thing he wants his people to understand. And so we see this in numerous passages. Uh, and this, this was so extremely important. But it's also important to understand when he gives this name, that this name was a personal name applying to one specific being. I have heard objectors to the, to the Trinity or to monotheism in general trying to get out of this by saying, oh, well, Yahweh is a class of beings, uh, but Yahweh is a family name. So just as I am Mr. Wayne, 
and my father is Mr. Wayne, and my grandfather is Mr. Wayne, and any one of us could introduce ourselves as Mr. Wayne. Um, that, that's, that's what he's saying, but that is clearly not what he is getting at. And we can see this not only in the force of the title and what it meant that God is in the singular, that, that everything about this is pointing to one specific God, but as we move on uh, through scripture, uh, we see God, for example, in one of the most famous passages uh, that Jesus himself quotes in Isaiah 6 for um, the, the verse that comes right before, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, the greatest commandment is, includes these words, hear, O Israel, the Lord, so Yahweh, the I am, is our God, and Yahweh, the Lord, is one. It's not a race of Yahweh's. It's not a family of Yahweh's. Yahweh is one. There is one Yahweh. One God, and that one God is Yahweh, and he is one. One being, one living God. And this, it's interesting, because when you look at uh, another familiar God name in the, in the Old Testament, like Baal, or you might, be, you might say Baal, um, the... We think of Baal as a personal name of an individual God, but if you actually read through the Old Testament, you will come across references to Israel being indicted for worshiping the Baals, plural. But you never see any reference to the Yahwehs. Yahweh is one. Baal is not one. Yahweh is. Yahweh is a single, individual, personally named God whose very definitive quality he first introduces to Israel is that he is the only God who is. And so uh, these, this again was not the only time that uh, Moses would write such a thing in Deuteronomy. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. So in all the domain of existence, in the heavens, on the earth, anywhere you go, anywhere in all of existence, you will not find another God. Travel the stars, pick one, call it Kolob if you want, go find all the planets there. You're not going to find another God there. There are no other gods in all of existence, <coughs> save Yahweh. Isaiah likewise points out in many places. We'll look at just a few key ones. Hmm. Isaiah says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. Isaiah 43.10. Um, so not only is there no, God, no other God anywhere in all of existence, there is no God any when in all of existence besides Yahweh. In the past, there were no gods. Yahweh wasn't brought, to brought into existence by any other God. He won't bring any other gods into existence. No one else will be elevated to God. There will never be, nor has there ever been, any other God but Yahweh. Isaiah goes on to say elsewhere, 44, uh, 6 through 8, 
Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, again speaking here, the Lord, the King of Israel, and his, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the, the, from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. We likewise see Isaiah saying in uh, 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Jeremiah uh, likewise writes, but the Lord Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the earth. Now, of course, as we've seen in everything else, this isn't saying that those other gods that were being worshipped were actually real existing gods. The whole point is they can do nothing. They've done nothing. And ultimately the, the, the idolatry of the nations will be obliterated because what did, what did Jeremiah say? Uh, go back. The Lord is the true God. So all other go gods are false gods. He is the living God. All other gods are dead, lifeless gods. Yahweh alone is God. To give just one more example, in Joel 2.27, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. I am the Lord, there is no other. And so this point cannot be overstated. We cannot say this strongly enough. There is only one God in all of existence. And anything else that we say about God must be understood in the context of this central, uh, universally biblical claim, unanimous from all the biblical authors, that only one true, genuine, eternal, living God exists. And that is Yahweh. And so when we speak, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, unfortunate that uh, even some Christians will sometimes give in to the terminology that people who are Unitarian, who believe that God is just one person and not, not, not three persons, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but is just a single person, the Unitarian view of God, we'll call that strict monotheism, as if Trinitarianism is some sort of loose, qualified monotheism. But it's not. We believe with no asterisks that there is only one God. The rest of what we say, we are discussing the nature of that one God. 
how that one God exists, his incredible and unique personal nature that he has made known to us, and that he is not confined to the limits of the finite personal existence that an individual human has. Nor should we be surprised that that is true of the God who brought all things into existence from nothing. We should marvel at the unique, expansive, incredible personal nature of this God. And so let's marvel. Let's, let's take a look that this one God exists in these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we began talking about monotheism, we began with a name. And so as we begin talking about the three persons of the Trinity, I again want to begin with a name. And so in uh, at the beginning of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus' tr uh, resurrection, his triumph over death and hell, and he stands before his disciples, before ascending into heaven, he gives them the Great Commission, and he says these vitally important words. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not the names, but the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In, uh, and this, is, this isn't just semantics and wordplay here. When we understand the context of what's being said by name here, it, it becomes even more abundantly clear that when you are sent out to, to carry out an authoritative action in someone's name, if a king sends out an ambassador, go negotiate peace with this fellow, uh, with this uh, uh, neighboring nation in my name, you are going in my authority as my representative. And so you are going in a name of your sovereign. And who is the sovereign of the disciples who are being sent out? Well, what, in whose name are they going? By what authority are they going? And it's by the authority, not of God and a prophet and an impersonal force, as some Unitarian faiths might, uh, might, might structure these persons, that, that what is being said here, and not in the multiple different names of a bunch of different beings, you are going in the name of the being, of the sovereign, of the Lord, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the name given at the beginning of the Old Covenant, Yahweh, is the name of the being. He, he gave his name at the beginning of the New Covenant as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is whose name you're going. They're going in. That is whose name we preach the gospel, and that's whose name we baptize in. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one true God, Yahweh. Again, let's not let this rest on a single verse. It was never meant to. So how do we see this flush out in the rest of the New Testament? Well, what we see, what we see is that each of the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is identified in, in name, in titles, in actions, in attributes, in historical involvement, 
to, with Israel in all of these things as Yahweh. We won't look at all of the examples of this today, but we're going to look at some basic passages that help us see that each of the persons is Yahweh. That the New Testament writers thoroughly understood and believed and taught based on that, that, that reality. And yet that each of those persons is a distinct person. And thus, when we have one God, Yahweh, when all of these persons are Yahweh and each are interacting with each other, we have arrived at the doctrine of the Trinity. You begin to see how someone studying the fullness of scripture must come to this conclusion and how God uses the history of his interaction with his people and the revelations that he made through prophets and apostles and inspired writings of history to make this fact known. So let's begin with the one that most people would assume up front, that the Father is Yahweh. Um, uh, the vast majority of people who read the New, the New Testament don't need to be convinced of this. They're, they already understand, okay, the Old Testament God is the Father of Jesus Christ, who sent the Messiah, who sent the prophets, who's keeping these, these promises. Who, who, so when Jesus prays to his Father, he's praying to Yahweh, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, that's, who, that, that's the Father. But I live in Utah. And out here, it is common Mormon tradition uh, that Yahweh or Jehovah, uh, they would go with the traditional anglicized form Jehovah, is the name of the Son, not the Father. And so it's worth taking a little time to show that the New Testament, while it's an easy and fair assumption that the Father is Yahweh, that it doesn't leave that purely to assumption. Um, and so we're going to begin actually by looking at an Old Testament passage, but it is the most frequently cited or alluded to chapter, Old Testament chapter, throughout the New Testament. This chapter comes up more than any other passage in the Old Testament. And the most common verse to be cited or alluded to is uh, uh, Psalm 110.1. So Psalm 110 is the most cited pa passage. Chapter 1 is the most cited verse. And in that verse, we read, The Lord says to my Lord. Now notice the capitalization right away. The Lord Yahweh says to my, my Lord, my master, uh, my sovereign, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so we have the psalmist writing here about two figures, one speaking to the other one, an interaction between them. So we have Yahweh saying to the psalmist's master, to the psalmist's sovereign, sit at my right hand. Similarly, we have in another um, passage that's alluded to more than once in the New Testament, uh, later in the psalm, we see verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in this psalm, we have two, again, two figures. Yahweh and the psalmist's Lord who is being interacted with. He's being given promises from Yahweh. Uh, so when we get to the New Testament, who quotes this Psalm and references it all the time, who does the, do the New Testament authors identify these two persons with? Well, we'll begin with Jesus himself. I think that's a fair place to start. Who did Jesus believe 
He references this passage more than once. Um, I'll give one example. You could also look at his trial, and he, he applies this, this passage to himself um, in his trial before his crucifixion again. But here in Matthew 22, 41 through 46, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, or the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, so who did David call his Lord? Well, the second Lord, the master, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he David's son? So Jesus identifies this as Yahweh speaking to the Messiah, Yahweh speaking to the son, the son of God, Jesus. So Jesus identifies Yahweh as the Father, making this promise to the Son, making, uh, making this statement to the Son. Um, so no one was able to answer him uh, a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. Uh, Hebrews 7.21, another good example of this. For they indeed became priests. Uh, uh, so th this will be looking at the second person at ver verse 4. Hebrews, by the way, if you look in Hebrews 1 and in Hebrews 10, I believe, it also references Psalm 110.1 and specifically, very explicitly says that that was the Father talking to the Son. So the Father is identified as the Yahweh in verse 1. Similarly, Hebrews here in uh, 7.21, for they indeed became priests, without an oath, so that's talking about the Old Testament priests, the Levitical priests, but he, Jesus, with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So the Lord, Yahweh, is talking to Jesus, and Jesus is being appointed our high priest forever, uh, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the promise that Yahweh gave to the psalmist's Lord Hebrews believes Yahweh gave it to Jesus. Yahweh's talking to the Son. Um, so in Psalm 110, who is Yahweh being identified with? The Father. The Father is called Yahweh by name in this passage. The Father is identified as Yahweh. So everything we've looked at, we can see. And I could show many more examples of this, but... What we see here, Psalm 110, is just a great place to look where repeatedly you have the Father speaking to the Son. And the New Testament is so clear that it's the Father speaking to the Son. And, what, and, and who is being identified as Yahweh? The Father is called Yahweh by name repeatedly in that psalm as all the New Testament authors interpreted it. So the Father is Yahweh. Plainly identified, the New Testament authors definitely believed that. And yet, what do we also see? The Father is personally distinct from the Son. Now, my Jehovah's Witness friends who might be watching this so far are saying, absolutely, the Father is Yahweh and Jesus is a different person. And so the Father is Yahweh and Jesus is not. There we go. Not so fast. Let's stay in the same book. Um... Hebrews, which clearly identifies the Father as Yahweh and its use of Psalm 110. And yet, we have Hebrews 1, 8 through 12. But of the Son, 
he says, and it's going to quote two Psalms here. The second one, Psalm 102, is going to be our, our most important to focus on. But let's look at the whole context. We could see all of this is being said about the Son. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, and so, and, now here's the second quotation. This is from Psalm 102. You, Lord, in the beginning, so this is still talking to the Son, you, Lord, Son, um, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So the Son is directly addressed as God, directly addressed as Lord, called Creator, said that he created everything, that unlike created things that wear out, that he is eternal, unchanging, and will never wear out. Elsewhere in Hebrews, Hebrews, it says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All of these divine attributes and titles are heaped on Jesus, and that's not even the reason why I turn to this passage. All of that should be more than enough, and yet that's all icing on the cake, because what the author of Hebrews said here is that Psalm 102 was talking to the Son. You, O Lord, in the beginning laid out the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. Turn to Psalm 102 and just read it beginning to end. The Lord is addressed frequently throughout in all of these uh, uh, praises are heaped upon him, and what, who is being spoken to? Yahweh by name. The Lord in Psalm 102, the Lord being addressed there is Yahweh. Jesus is being directly identified with Yahweh by name, not just by implication, but directly by name. The Lord Yahweh is the Son. And this is not New Testament authors disagreeing with each other on who Yahweh is. This is the author of Hebrews, who we already saw identified the Father as Yahweh. And spoiler alert, we're going to see later the author of Hebrews identifies the Spirit as Yahweh. This is not, uh, this is not a matter of, oh, well, early Christians just hadn't worked this out. No, they did. And they understood that the Father was Yahweh and the Son was Yahweh. All right, is Hebrews just weird in this regard? No. Let's, let's take a look at the Gospel of John and see where John writes, These things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, 
He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them." So, what's going on here? He, uh, Jesus, or John quotes from two passages in Isaiah, and he's applying these passages to, to, uh, to, to Jesus. And showing these are things that the reason that these Pharisees are rejecting Jesus and not believing him are because of these things that Isaiah prophesied regarding the time when Jesus came. So he's talking about Jesus, talking about Isaiah foretelling Jesus. That's important to recognize as we read the last portion here. These things Isaiah said because, his, uh, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Saw whose glory? and spoke of who? Well, in context, it's Jesus. He saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. Now, the two quotes from Isaiah that John gives here are from Isaiah 53.1 and Isaiah 6.10. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah 53, a passage where he speaks about Jesus, but that's not a visionary passage where, where Isaiah saw anything prophetically. But Isaiah 6 is. So he quotes from two passages, Isaiah 53, where he spoke of him, and Isaiah 6, where he saw his glory. But whose glory did John see in Isaiah 6? Well, Isaiah 6, 1 opens, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, and that should actually be in all caps there. It's, I saw Yahweh, I saw the, the, the Lord, God by name, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord. Who did, it, who did John say he saw? Said that he saw Jesus, saw his glory. And the connection that, that John is making between seeing Jesus' glory and Isaiah's vision where he, sees, uh, where he sees Yahweh on his throne is actually made more explicit when we look at the translations of the time. Again, we're going to go back to the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation, and the Aramaic Targum to see how Jews would have read and paraphrased this language and how they described this vision in translation. And so we see in the Septuagint, and it happened in the year that King Uzziah, or, you know, just a Greek re, uh, pronunciation of King Uzziah, died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and raised up, and the house was full of his glory. So instead of saying that the house or the temple was filled with the train of his robe, it, they paraphrased that as filled with his glory. So there was a direct understanding in the vocabulary of the time that when Isaiah had this vision of the Lord, he saw his glory. That when Isaiah saw his glory, that was in this, this temple vision here. Similarly, in the Aramaic Targums, we see, in the year that King Uzziah was struck, I saw the glory of the Lord resting upon a throne, high and lifted up in the heavens of, the, uh, in the heavens of height, and the temple was filled with the brilliance of his glory. And so we have clearly 
uh, when John says, speaks of when Isaiah, Isaiah saw his glory, and he's quoting from Isaiah 6, he has this vision in mind. But John identifies that as him seeing Jesus' glory. He understood Jesus to be the one true God of Israel. Is it any wonder that John would open his gospel with this idea that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created by Him, and without Him, nothing, not even one thing was made that has been made. There's the, the, again, there's the, the two persons, with God and was God, but there is a union of being. This one God, the Lord, Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh. And when Isaiah saw the glory of Yahweh, he saw the Son. He saw Jesus in the temple, in all his, his, in a vision of his glory. That's what John understood. That's what Christians understand. As we encounter this in scripture, it's, it's an, just an amazing reality. And so, but let's continue. Paul has the same view. And so, we see uh, Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's keep in mind, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Let's continue. Uh, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what, what were we seeing here? We were seeing that we are to call on Jesus, confess Jesus as Lord. What was supposed to come off our lips is that Jesus is Lord. We are supposed to call on Jesus as Lord. Then we get to this scriptural quotation, just as the Old Testament says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, 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 calling on calling on, calling on, confessing as, coming off our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's the Lord throughout this passage. So when he quotes this passage from Joel, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, unquestionably, Paul has Jesus in mind here. And yet, when we look back at what he's quoting there, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, he's quoting from Joel, Joel chapter 2, where whoever calls on the name of the Lord is whoever calls on the name of Yahweh. He's, he's directly identifying Jesus as Yahweh, the Lord. And lest there be any doubt of this, we can look in, uh, we can look in 1 Corinthians 10.9, for example. Uh, now, uh, oh no. Oh, this, uh, the, I forgot, the NASB is actually well, the, uh, the off translation on this, uh, this particular verse. Sorry, <laughs> no. Luke. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, that was my fault. I picked that translation for our presentation. So, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. 1 Corinthians 10.9. Now, if you open virtually any other Bible translation 
what you're going to find is it'll actually say, nor let us try Christ, as some, as, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. He, he identifies Christ as the one who was tested in the wilderness. So why does the NSB say Lord here? Didn't plan on getting into this, but since that's what we got up there, it's worth, you know, some of you have NSB might confused, be confused at me citing this verse if you look it up in your own Bible. So in God's providence, I'm glad this happened. So uh, there are a small minority of manuscripts, but a few of them early that have the word Lord there instead of Jesus. And the NASB sided with those manuscripts, but they're in the, in the scholarly minority on that. The vast majority of New Testament manuscripts and the earliest, and we're talking back to the, the second century, the 200s AD, very early manuscripts, multiple streams of manuscripts, an abundance of manuscripts would say Christ rather than Lord here. And so the, um, the majority of translations will say, nor let us try Christ rather than Lord in this particular passage. And so Paul is almost certainly here specifically identifying Christ as the one that the people of Israel tested in the desert and were destroyed by, uh, by the serpents. Uh, okay. Well, there are, so we see the scriptures about Yahweh are said to have been about the sun. The actions of Yahweh, such as creation, delivering Israel in the wilderness, punishing them with the serpents, th these things are attributed to the sun. The sun is addressed as God. So the sun is Yahweh. There is another point I wanted to make to drive this home even more, but this is, as we are running a little shorter on time, I'm going to go ahead and pipe bypass that and get on to discussing the spirits. So don't mind me for a moment as I get my slides on, uh, on track there for that. Thank you for your patience. So we've You're seen, welcome, Luke. <laughs> so, uh, we've seen that the father is Yahweh. We've seen that the Son is Yahweh, and we have seen the distinctions between the Father and Son as persons. But what about the Spirit? Um, is the Spirit likewise identified in this way? And it would be weird for me to answer no at this point, wouldn't it? But yeah, so yes, we will see in Scripture, yes, the Spirit is likewise identified in this manner. So we have... Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, all right, who is speaking here? Whose words are being quoted? The Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked who in the day of trial? Me, who's speaking the Holy Spirit, the day of wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for, uh, for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they will always go astray in their hearts. And they did not know my ways. So we have here a quotation from the Holy Spirit 
And these are the words of Yahweh, speaking with the personal pronouns of Yahweh, owning the deeds of Yahweh, owning the, the, the wrath of Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is the one who was angry with that generation. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Likewise, Hebrews 10, 15 through 16, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and, uh, and their mind I will write on them. He then says, oh, we left part of the verse off. All right. You see the point uh, that the the Holy Spirit is the one speaking here, the very words of Yahweh, not as a messenger. They are his words. It is the Holy Spirit speaking. And we see these same things fleshed out in live action in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit, it, we don't often think of the Holy Spirit in this way. We think of the Holy Spirit as our comforter, and he is. We think of the Holy Spirit as the one who reveals Christ and makes him known to the world and convicts sin and brings people to repentance, and he is. We don't often think about the Holy Spirit getting angry, but the Holy Spirit gets angry. The Holy Spirit has wrath. The Holy Spirit judges. The Holy Spirit punishes. The Holy Spirit is a full-orbed person with all the personal attributes and expressions you would expect from a person. And that person is identified by the author of Hebrews as Yahweh. And so as we look further, we see, but Peter said, so this, here we're in Acts chapter five, and we're dealing with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, two people who pretended they, they sold all they had and, or, and brought some of the proceeds, but lied to the church and said they were bringing all the proceeds so they could try to get the credit for being righteous, holy people who are sacrificial people who are giving up all they have and yet also trying to hold on to their wealth, trying to privately keep their wealth to themselves while publicly looking like um, very, you know, very self-sacrificial people in service of the church. So their, their, their hypocrisy is here being judged. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So who is Ananias lying to the Holy Spirit? Again, the Holy Spirit is personal. You don't lie to things, to its, to forces, to miraculous action. You, you lie to persons. And so who's he lying to? He's lying to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? So it would have been fine if you just kept it. There was no sin in just, just keeping it. It's okay for you to have it. But and after it was sold, was it not under your control? If you just said, I'm going to give you some and I'm going to keep some, that actually wouldn't have been a problem. Yet why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart. You have lied not to men, but to God. Let's look back. 
uh, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. You have lied not to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit is here being identified as God. The one being lied to is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, later in the story, we see uh, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, who was co-conspirator on this, being uh, also confronted. Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Who are you putting to the test? The Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the husband of the, the, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And yes, that does mean that they were both struck dead for this sin. And that just as we saw in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit's wrath was provoked as they tested the Holy Spirit. The same kind of language is used here as is used in, in Hebrews, dealing with the Holy Spirit as Yahweh, carrying out Yahweh's judgment on his people, having the wrath of God at sin, being identified as God. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh God. Paul speaks elsewhere of the Holy Spirit being grieved, all of the, again, fully personal, a distinct person. We know that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and by the Son. We know that the, the uh, Holy Spirit uh, intercedes to the Father. We have all these reasons to see that the Holy Spirit is distinct from Father and Son. But we see that the Holy Spirit, nevertheless, is Yahweh. And there are another number of other passages that we could look at on this. John 14, 26, talking about the Spirit as helper. Um, John 15, 26, uh, again, John 16, 7. All of these things show these distinctions, show these personal and divine attributes. We could walk through these things, but for time's sake, um, we'll put those out there for you guys to to go and read. I've had them on the screen briefly, um, but in summary, what we've seen here, the Holy Spirit is identified as Yahweh, the one true God. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has wrath. He makes covenants. He can be lied to, etc. The Holy Spirit is distinct from both the Father and the Son. And so, to quote uh, um, R.C. Sproul, in, in uh, one of his books, after he's made a similar argument from the scriptures, in these and many other passages in the New Testament, the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is set forth explicitly or implicitly uh, when considered together with the Bible's clear teaching as to the oneness of God. The only conclusion is that there is one God in three persons, the doctrine of of the Trinity. And so this is just some of the many things that we could have brought out today that show these basic realities by which throughout the scriptures we encounter God and he reveals in a way that lets us see him as the triune God, meet him as the triune God. And through that, come to understand what it means for him to be one God eternally existing in three distinct persons. 
And so there will be many more opportunities in the future for us to go into this, but I hope this has been a helpful introduction to you onto the biblical doctrine of the Trinity that is not some later um, uh, Christian creation, but is something that Christians, while uh, later Christians formulated ways of expressing it and the words that we use to summarize what we mean by it, that in fact, this is the inevitable conclusion of believing everything that the scripture has to say about who God is. So thank you guys for joining us this week. We really appreciate you tuning in. Uh, if you found this helpful, I would appreciate you uh, uh, sharing it on your uh, Facebook and Twitter, other social media accounts so that other people can benefit from, his, from it as well. And please tune in next week as we, Lord willing, we are planning to uh, have my good friend and colleague, colleague Bradley Campbell on from the ministry God Loves Mormons, where we're going to talk about the... Uh, the basic beliefs of Mormonism, the differences with biblical Christianity, and the way that we Christians can share our faith effectively with our Mormon friends and neighbors. So I hope you guys can join me for that. Uh, thank you again for tuning in and have a wonderful night.